Talking Finance with Brian Hirsch, making sense of your finance. All right, let's get straight into it. Brian, good morning. Kathy, good morning. You know, you and I have been on air for one year now. I can't believe it, right? Can you believe I it? Have, it's been a year already. Mm. And I haven't met you, and I can continue. Uh, I wish I had the guts because I'm so dying to get back into the studio. You know, one just needs variation in one's life. And I sit behind four walls uh, on the phone, on Zoom and Microsoft, and I'd just love to be back. Hopefully in the next few months I will be able to be back. But it's one year since you and I have started talking on this. I'm, on the I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to meeting you, Brian, because I think it's going to be great having being able to have these conversations kind of face-to-face, you know. And I'm, I'm just scared when I come back to say, who's this old man? <laughs> <laughs> Never. He's he's somebody who's got great advice. We all need a Brian Hirsch in our lives, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Um, you asked me last week about how one goes about finding a financial planner. Mm-hmm. And with your permission, that's what I'd like to talk about this morning. You can go for it. But I'd just like to do a little bit of housekeeping. When I leave, when people call me on my line, my radio line, I have asked them, please, to leave details of where they are calling from. Because when I can only call back once. I don't have time more than that. And then when I can't get hold of someone, if I can't leave a message or pass their name on to someone in their area, it gets very difficult. So this week, Togela and Mr. Pillay, I try to get back to you, but I don't know where, you, where you're calling from. And um, you didn't even have an answering service on your phone. But getting back to our subject this morning, and if I can just maybe mention again for the many new listeners that we may have gleaned over the last period of time, our Tuesday morning program is about any financial matter, anything to do with investments, tax, uh, retirement planning, and estate planning. But I tend to hone in on one particular subject for the first few minutes of the program, but that doesn't stop anyone calling at any time, not just till the end of the program, but during the program, stopping me to answer a question that they may have or a problem or a query. But talking about a financial advisor, you know, I'm always asked, how do you go about finding a financial advisor? And most people actually think that a financial advisor is only for the wealthy. So for every adult, whether small or big, in your circumstances, it's what's about you and your family. And getting an expert on board is help to, to help one make personal decisions on personal circumstances. Look at your objectives. Look at your risk tolerance. Is one better investment doing better than another and why? And this is not due to, to any individual not understanding. You know, this is my business, finance, and everyone's in different types of business. The two people that, that I couldn't get hold of, the one is a truck driver and the one works for government. So what, the, what is their knowledge expected to be if they don't study it all the time? So very simply, all financial advisors have to be governed today by phase. So the industry's changed. Your financial advisor is responsible for providing you with appropriate advice. And if your financial advisor gives you wrong advice, you have recourse against them, both with the financial ombud, who governs financial planning and governs their license, and if, if they're an agent for a company, you have recourse against that company for the advice the financial advisor has given. 
Um, the financial advisors have what we call license one, which allows them to sell funeral schemes, license two to sell endowment policies and life cover, and then license three is really all the other financial products that you need to have. The easiest way to find a financial advisor is to speak to colleagues or friends or family to find out who they're dealing with, how long have they been dealing with their financial advisor, and are they satisfied with the service they get. I do believe that if you're going to take on a financial advisor, it should be for the long term. And I always say the relationship between an individual and a financial advisor is like a three-legged table. And the three legs are, firstly, you want capability. And today, because we're all licensed, we have to be governed and we, we have to be capable of how can we give correct advice. The second leg is, is compatibility. I think it's very important that you're compatible with your financial advisor. You have a rapport. And the third is confidence. And any of those three factors break. If one of those legs break, the relationship falls over, and that's the end of your relationship with the financial advisor. But I do believe people should, when you take on a financial advisor, interview them. Ask them for their background and experience. Ask them how do they keep up to date with changes with the industries and update the knowledge. We've had so many changes just this month. We've had changes to immigration. We've had changes to retirement funds and what you can do with your retirement funds and provident funds. And that's happening all the time. So how do they keep up to, up, up to advice? Are they a broker and do they represent many companies or are they an agent representing one company? Now, that, if you're an agent, that doesn't mean the company you represent, there's anything wrong with it, but that company may not have the best of all products. And that's why sometimes I advise on a broker because a broker can go to different companies and get different products and different premiums. Not every company is competitive in every, in every product. Um, and in what percentage of their business do they place? Ask this question. What percentage of your business do you place with the various companies? You may find someone, and by the way, we as financial advisors have to disclose everything. You may find one person who tells you he's a broker, he's a broker, but he's putting 95% of his business with one company. That doesn't make him a broker. That makes him more of an agent. Um, under your fund, understand the financial advisor's business model. And, the, and what business he concentrates on. Does he concentrate on life insurance, retirement funds, endowment policies, unit trust, and other investments offshore? And you can also ask him what courses they've done over the last 12 months. Um, it's just so important. And then they're going to ask you equally as well a lot of information. And if you don't feel you can give that information to your financial advisor, that person is wrong for you because it's very important. They need to understand your financial dynamics. They're going to ask you a lot of personal aspects about your life. Do you have comp comprehensive budget? They're going to look at your will. They're going to look at updates on your current investments and policies. If you're in a business, they're going to ask how you're going to evaluate the value of that business that one day you may leave to your family and find out what succession plans have you got in that business. And then you, the most important thing is you need to explain how you will earn your money. What will you do? Because charges, while charges, too many people concentrate on charges, 
be wary of trying to place too much emphasis on the cost incurred when selecting and appointing a good financial advisor. I mean, I always say the minimal costs paid by the investor to a good advisor will be covered many times over upon receipt of excellent investment advice. So the commission will pale into insignificance if they're doing a good job. And if they're not doing a good job, you can fire them. And if you're in an area where, where there aren't a lot, an enormous amount of concentration of financial advisors, like in Durban and PE and Cape Town and Johannesburg, speak to your bank, because your bank does have financial advisors, and they are also governed by FASE, and FASE is the Financial Advisory Intermediary Services Act, which, which sets out the conduct between you and your financial advisor, so you, he's responsible for giving you what's called appropriate advice, assessing everything, and letting you know exactly what the charges are. You can, you can negotiate fees on investment products, and you can also look in the marketplace what other financial advisors charge, and I hope that helps in a simple way clarifying the importance of having a financial advisor and what their roles are. Of course, we're talking by finance rather with Brian Hirsch. And uh, today we're focusing on uh, financial advisors. You can uh, call us up on 011-714-2006. And that's the number to use to get in touch with us on the line. You can also uh, WhatsApp your questions or comments on 0614-104-107. Brian, you, you, you made the distinction between the financial advisor, the broker, and also an agent. So when one is getting advice from, let's say, a financial advisor that has been provided by their bank, will this individual not be recommending products that are offered by the institution that they work for? Well, sorry, you, then you're talking about an agent. You're, not talk, you're talking about an agent who represents one company. Yes, he can only provide ad, uh, um, um, quotes and information from that one product. And, and not every company is competitive in every product. That agent may have been working for a company where four or five of their products are very competitive and three or four are uncom- uncompetitive. I'll give you an example. When you retire, you, have a, you, you are able to buy either a living annuity or a life annuity. You, when you shop the market, you'll see that every week these rates change and one week company A may be top, one week company B may be top. If you're working for a company and you, someone's retiring, you can only give them rates from your company and yet they may not be competitive. In other words, if I've got a million rand and I'm going to retire, company A says I'm going to give you a pension of 11,000 and company B says I'm going to give you a pension of 10,500. Well, you want to be able to shop the market to get the client the best pension because that's the pension that could be payable for the rest of the life of that individual. Uh, when you talk about disability, there are different definitions of disability. There's a disability definition if you're disabled from your own occupation or a similar occupation, or you could be disabled from any occupation. Very big difference in cost. And not all companies have exact same definitions of disability. When it comes to dreaded disease, the critical illness insurance, some companies may have a wider Oh, we seem to have lost Brian Hirsch there. Not sure what is going on with that line. What we'll do is we'll try and get Brian back up on the line. Let's take a quick break. I'll also be back with the voice notes that you're sending in. And I'm seeing a couple of your questions that I'll also be putting to Brian Hirsch.
here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. SAFM 107 FM in Kruenstadt. We're live on The Talking Point and we're talking finance with Brian Hirsch. Today we're looking at the importance of a financial advisor and also just the criteria. What is it that you should keep in mind when looking for a financial advisor? And that's the conversation that we've been having this morning. Uh, Brian, uh, are you back on the line? I'm back. Did we have? Did you have load shedding? <laughs> it must be. It must be right. You, if, if it isn't load shedding, it's the telephone. It's the, the, the telephone system. I can tell you. I get so frustrated. Yesterday, every single master of my staff member living from Edenvale on the on the East Rand to the West Rand we had load shedding. I had load shedding four times last week. Uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It, it gets so know. difficult, right? It's so frustrating. I don't know how we're meant to actually uh, um, work the way we do uh, if you don't have all the, all the, the inverters or, or, or generators and things like that. Anyway, let's, so, so that's really, so all I was making the point, I'm not sure where I got cut off, is that different companies will, will have, some. one company may not have all the best products. So mm-hmm. it is some, sometimes good to look around the market and get yourself someone who represents more than one company. All right, Brian, let's, let's take some of the questions that are coming in from our listeners. Um, Yash in Durban says, hi, Brian. At the age of 35, can I start a retirement annuity or unit trust? Well, at the age of 35, you want to have both simply because a retirement annuity is there to provide money for you at retirement and you can't withdraw from a retirement annuity until age 55, whereas a unit trust gives you more flexibility. A unit trust, what you can do is if you need money in five or seven or eight years' time, you can draw the money. You're not limited to 55. The second difference is whatever you contribute to a retirement annuity is tax deductible from your taxable income up to 350,000 rand a year. Whatever you contribute to a unit trust, you pay with after-tax rands. Retirement, you will receive money and it will be tax payable. Under a unit trust, there will be no tax payable other than the CGT. Just one point that people don't realize, you can buy unit trusts in your retirement annuity because your retirement annuity gives you the facility to invest the proceeds. A retirement annuity is like a room. I'm going to buy a room from someone, whether it be a mutual, a Sunlam, a metropolitan, whatever the case may be, but then I've got to invest those monies and those investment funds subject under retirement annuity to a maximum of 75% I can put into equities, I can put into a unit trust, whereas a unit trust I can put 100% into equities. All right, Brian, I'm also going to start taking some WhatsApp voice notes on the subject. I'll play one and you can respond to what they say. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm calling here Chris from PE. I want to know about investment in Bitcoin. I see it grows and it grows. Uh, could I ever put uh, my investment in Bitcoin? Thank you. Bye-bye. Chris, it's a question I dread and it's a question I get nearly every week on TV, Bitcoin. And I must tell you, I know very little about Bitcoin. I I don't even understand it. I don't understand this virtual currency. So I'm not going to comment. All I can say is people have made money, but people have lost money. Uh, Ten years ago, you'd made an absolute fortune if you'd bought Bitcoin. 2017, it went to $20,000. It then dropped 
get all the way down to $3,000, you would have lost 85% of your money, and it's subsequently now run from 3000 to 56000 and and people are punting it, and I use the word punting it to go to $200,000. It's not the only cryptocurrency. I think you've got to be very careful. You, what, if you're going to go into crypto country, it's not an investment for me. You've got to say, I'm prepared to lose a certain amount of money because it's a currency that is still in its infancy stage. And it's not a currency. It's a, it's an, it's a, it's a type of barter system where you'll swap bitcoins for, for products. Uh, I know Tesla now has gone very big into Bitcoin and you can go and buy one of their Tesla cars with a Bitcoin. But I cannot comment with a Bitcoin. There's no real research. You can ask me about a company, whether it be an Amazon, whether it be a pick and pay. I can look at actual research. I can interrogate the figures. I can have a look at what the chief executive is saying. I can have a look at what the chief operating officer is saying. But with Bitcoin, it's a gut feel. It's a feel about individuals who believe and believe strongly that it's the future. But I cannot, I, I, I certainly in, cannot advise at all about uh, going into Bitcoin. If you're going to go into any of these crypto countries, understand the risk you're getting into. Do your own research because there is no real uh, scientific research other than the gut feel and the belief by many individuals that it's the currency of the future. Brian, just to just to check what and make sure I understand what, part of what you've, what you've just said, when it comes to Bitcoin, are you saying that if I take five thousand rand today and I invested with Bitcoin, I'm technically never going to get five thousand rand in hard cash back in my hands that I can withdraw at a bank, but I will get the equivalent of that to use wherever Bitcoin is accepted to buy whatever products I'm looking for? No, you can't trade. You can't sell it. Okay. You can sell, okay. There, there, there is a market, there's, but it's a market made up of supply and demand. When there's more supply and the demand is less, the price will come down. There's more demand, which it seems to be at the moment because it's on everyone's lips because people have made, are making so much money, but it's like everything else. Just be very careful when people are making a fortune of money. Just be very careful you're not getting sucked in. So if you're going to take your 5,000 and you're going to take a little bit of a risk and you want to have a little bit of what they call skin in the game, they're all good and well. But I, don't, I wouldn't consider it an investment product. I'm not even licensed to advise or sell. And even if I was, I'd be very wary because of my ability uh, or inability to actually understand fully and, and, and understand fully by doing all the necessary research. Okay, thanks for that, Brian. Uh, let's continue with the WhatsApp voice notes then. Hi, Auntie Cafe. May you please um, ask uh, your guest for me? Um, a domestic worker who earns less than 2,000 rand how can she or he manage to save for his or her uh, uh, pension while maybe he or she is paying for school fees, etc., etc.? Brian? It's a very sad situation because, I, by the way, I, I didn't think 2,000 rand is, is that. Uh, I think that's way below minimum wage. But having said that, I'm not quite sure what the minimum wage is for domestic workers. But no chance to save. That individual, domestic workers, people earning those sort of monies are going to have to rely on the government pension fund, uh, which currently, by the way, uh, at retirement, uh, and it is around about the 1850, 1860 mark. Forgive me if I haven't got that 100% because there may have been an increase slightly 
in the budget. I think there was. But somewhere around those marks, you're going to rely on that. But certainly with education and food and all the things you need to do and bringing up children, mm. I mean, with that sort of money, you're certainly not going to be able to save. Um, it's just really all you can do is, and I'm sure you do do, is just assess carefully every month where your money is going and make sure it's going on the right, in the right places. Don't get yourself into debt because you also won't be able to ever repay the debt. Mm. So it's a real unfortunate situation uh, for South Africans working, uh, earning at that level and even worse for those who aren't working. All right, it's 10.30. Brian, I'm going to continue with you after uh, the latest news headlines. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 105.6 FM in Mtata. We continue talking finance with Brian Hirsch. Uh, Brian, I know that we've got just a couple of more minutes left with you. Lorraine, you're calling us from Durban. If you can please keep it short and sweet for me. Hi, Lorraine. Hi, Kathy. Good morning to you and Brian and the listeners. Mm. I'm just like, morning, in China and, hello. In trying to understand um, how it's worked out, is there a barometer that measures uh, the life expectancy of people who have chronic illnesses such as HIV and I'll take uh, diabetes? Because it seems to me there's a preference in insuring people, even for short or life term insurance policies who are HIV as opposed to those who are diabetic. If there's a reason for this, please, if Brian knows what it is, can we hear it from you guys? Have a good day, both of you. Thank you. I'll listen on the radio. Thanks. Lorraine, insurance companies assume everyone is healthy. And maybe maybe where they should have started is saying, if everyone's at this level, this is the premium we pay. That's what we call ordinary rates. As you get other particular ailments and comorbidities, so your premium goes up. And obviously, as you get older, a 40-year-old with comorbidities and a 40-year-old without comorbidities will definitely have a different rate. You know, we talk about life expectancy, and insurance company expect, based on your when they rate your policy, they expect your life expectancy, obviously, to be a lot shorter. Uh, 25 years ago, you couldn't even get life insurance if you were HIV. Today, you can get life insurance with HIV because they ask you about the treatment and there's all things that are being done. Um, You know, it's like everything. Some people will die young and some will die old, and that's the statistic that actuaries use. They use those tables. And sometimes they're very wrong because the, the people that they expect to live may die and there may be different reasons, accidents or some illness, and people who've got illnesses may live. So it's very difficult, but certainly from what they call life expectancy from the actuarial tables, those with different ailments, their life expectation is shorter than those who go into a policy and when they are underwritten, they've got what they call nothing wrong with them. They're in good health. They're not smokers. They've assessed their weight and their cholesterol, their blood pressure, all those things, but how wrong they can be. I mean, I've got people who are still living today in their 80s and 90s where you would have expected five or ten years ago for them not to be alive. But with the advancements in medical technology, things are improving all the time and people are able to live that much longer with ailments that they have lived 25, 30 years ago. They would be dead.
Okay. Uh, let me quickly go to one voice note, Brian, and then we can wrap up. Hi, Kathy. Please ask Brian, why do financial advisors charge you their fees? Even if you do not make a profit on your investment, you pay the fees. So the poor consumer gets a double loss. Fees plus loss in the investment value. Mikey Slender. Well, a financial advisor is assessing a portfolio and, and, and working out into the long term what your objective is. They have got no capability of telling you what's going to happen in the market. As a matter of fact, the financial report that was read a few minutes ago, Kathy made the comment that in India, the markets were up in China and our market's down this morning. So under, that's not the role of a financial planner. The role of a financial planner is to assess and to be with you through the good and the bad and to keep you on track and to keep doing financial reports. It's like any other professional person. You'd pay your accountant. If your business made losses, you'd still pay your accountant. Um, if you used a lawyer, if you used a doctor, if you used a dentist, you're paying for, their, for that, their professional services. You're paying the same for a financial advisor. I understand people are reluctant. You shouldn't be paying big fees. I mean, if I think about investment, if a financial advisor is taking half a percent, and that's not for, that's for giving you the advice, but the advice is not not always advice for the short term. Financial advisors don't give short term advice. They give long term. They assess your situation, what are your objectives, and then try and place investments accordingly to that objective. And from time to time, they need to change that. So they, they're working all the time. They're learning all the time. They're researching all the time in order to provide clients with an ongoing bit of information. If you're not feeling you're getting any support from a financial advisor and you're only losing money, then you, you're at liberty to change your financial advisor to someone else who hopefully uh, will do better for you. But remember, a new financial advisor is no guarantee that they're going to be doing better. It all depends on your investment strategy and then ultimately the world markets and the global economies all right brian i have to let you go now because i know you're rushing off to another meeting just the details that people can get a hold of you on you can leave messages on on my radio line zero one one double eight zero four triple eight please leave all your numbers and also let me know what area you're in because as to Gela and Mr. Pelay, unfortunately, I cannot get back to you. I don't know what area you're in. I try to get hold of you. No answering services. And I can't pass even your question on to someone in your area. Uh, 011-880-4888. Cathy, chat to you next week. Brian, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on to the show again today. A really solid advice there in terms of uh, financial um, advisors and what it is that we need to keep in mind when we are hunting for financial advisors. So unfortunately, yeah, it looks like um, I think it was Mike there who was asking about why they still take a fee, even if you make a loss. It looks like that's just the way that it is, right? But I hear you, Mike, that it's not always uh, the best thing. Surely you should get paid over only when you when we see the benefit of your work <laughs> but if that applied mm, I wonder how many people in South Africa would still be able to earn an income and and we won't say anything about government there so yeah let's take a quick break and after this we're talking about mentorship and that relationship of mentorship how do you go about uh, establishing those type of relationships maybe you want to be a mentor maybe you're looking for a mentor you are a mentee i will have that discussion after this